Amen. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, verses 18 through 20. And uh, I want you to take a look at that. Now, I know that um, this is attached to the armor of God. I'm going to explain to you how here. But uh, traditionally, verse 18 is included uh, by believers with the armor of God. And for good reason. I want to show you that, but my title is a little bit unusual because I've been going through um, these pieces of armor and my title has been whatever the piece of armor was. And tonight, my title is, you ready for this? When you strap on the armor, be ready to fight. All right, that's the message. When you strap on the armor, be ready to fight. Let's look at verse 18. Ephesians 6, these are the words of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we open the word together, I pray that all of us would be delighted with what you say in your word, that we would be hungry to know what it means and how it applies to ourselves, that we would listen attentively to the word that's preached. I ask that you would give me special grace and ability to open the word to your people. I pray that I would be thorough, but not exhaustive and exhausting but uh, that we would hear the word and uh, that we would know what we ought to do as a result. And I pray that you would work through us, in us, to make us into what you want us to be and make us effective in your work and that we would be ready and confident that we might enter the fray and uh, make a difference here where we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I doubt that you need to be told what you're doing when you strap on armor. It's, you know, like uh, you don't wear football pads, you know, the shoulder pads. You don't put those on every day. Some of you probably never put them on in your whole life. When I was, I don't know, three. I don't remember when it was. I remember the Christmas. My grandparents gave me a box. And in the box was a helmet, shoulder pads, a jersey, Pants, you know, those tight pants that football players wear with knee pads, a full Washington Redskins uniform they gave me. I knew I was blessed from that day forward. And I wore that thing around the house. The jersey fit, you know, when you're three, it fit for about six months. And uh, the shoulder pads, I, I kept squeezing into them. Uh, much longer than what I should have. But I still have the helmet. It is up on the shelf in my office right now to this day. It tells you how old that helmet is. Been there since I was three. couple years. But, uh, you know, when you put on shoulder pads and you put on the helmet, you know, you're doing that for a reason. It's not a costume. Right? You're not going to a costume party. You're not dressing up. 
You're not just getting your picture taken. You're, you're going into the battle. And when you put on the armor of God, it is not so that you look, can look cool wearing armor. It's because you're in a battle. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. Nothing makes you a target for the enemy's assaults quite like putting on the armor of God. If you're entering the battle and you're looking around wondering who you should throw your spear at, you know, or shoot your arrow at, you look for the people who are in the enemy's uniform. And the enemy knows our uniform. He's seen it for 2,000 years. The whole armor of God is the uniform of a believer. So our text tells us something about the kind of vigilance that's required of those who wear the armor. If you're going to put the armor on, understand you're going to be under assault. You're going to be attacked. That's why you put it on. But now that you have it on, you better be ready. You better not be walking around in a daze, walking around like, you know, a preoccupied boy who's thinking about cars. He's supposed to be at school, right? But he's thinking about cars or trucks or guns or something like that. From the start, then, what this passage is talking about here is the vigilance, the kind of vigilance that is required of the soldier. Soldiers, true soldiers of Jesus Christ must not be dreamy, listless, sleepy, preoccupied, must not be like dad at dinner time at the dinner table or, you know, dad sitting on the couch later in the evening, half asleep. The true soldier must watch and pray. It is not enough to put on the the, the armor. You must also prepare for battle. And the Christian soldier prepares for battle by watchful prayer. When you strap on the armor, in other words, you better be praying and you better be watching because that's what you're called to do. Be alert in prayer. Be prayerfully watching. That's the demeanor of the Christian soldier. That's the attitude of the Christian soldier. That's his readiness right there. So, I don't want to get ahead of myself because then I'll end up repeating when I get to it in my notes. But when we think about the, the, the armor of God, typically people say that we have two weapons or, or you'll hear something like that. You've got the sword of the spirit and you've got prayer as a weapon. I don't believe that God intended here for prayer to be a weapon, but rather prayer to be the kind of alertness when you're going into battle. Now, I've imagined going into battle. I'm sure you have as well. And you think you're going into battle. You're not, you know, whistling. You're not, you know, kicking at the kicking at the flowers. You're not pausing to look at the flowers. Even you're not checking out the scenery because, you know, somewhere out there, there is an enemy And you're about to engage with that enemy and you don't want to be caught by surprise, right? I mean, to me, the worst nightmare if you're a soldier is to be ambushed, to be caught by surprise here. And so the way that we do that 
is by watchful prayer, watching thereunto in prayer. I pointed out that the passage uses a series of participles to describe the way we stand firm in battle. Each piece of armor describes the way we withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And remember that the three there are three repetitions right in a row of this idea of standing. Withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand, stand therefore, right? And all the different parts of armor are attached to that stand therefore because the Bible uses a series of participles that are describing the way that you stand. Stand therefore having, notice that, because that's the participle, having your loins girt about with truth right here. Girding your loins with the truth. So this is one way that we stand firm here. The whole armor of God held together with the belt of God's word, truth, God's truth. That truth held honestly by a sincere believer. We stand firm by having on the breastplate of righteousness. That is our vital organs protected by that imparted righteousness. The righteousness that Christ is producing in you by means of sanctification, where he is producing a real righteousness, a genuine righteousness in you, that is protection for your vital organs. We stand firm by having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So then we are wearing our gospel shoes. No shoes, remember, were spiked like cleats, uh, but with nails driven through them to give the soldier grip. So just as nobody, I don't think, wants to go into battle barefoot, and plenty of soldiers have done it, but but that's certainly not the ideal. If I'm going to have anything covered at all, I want my feet covered, partly because I'm a tenderfoot um, and partly because I imagine, especially in warfare at that time, getting stomped on, especially if the soldier had cleats on his feet, would really hurt and really disable me. But also the the design of the shoes was not just as a weapon, but also to give me grip so that I can stand firm. And what makes me stand firm but the preparation of the gospel of peace? So the gospel shoes, a deep spiritual understanding of the gospel of peace that gives me sure footing against Satan's attacks so that I'm not slipping, so that I'm not sliding in the mud, in the muck, so that I'm not losing ground to the enemy. We stand firm by taking the shield of faith. And that faith, so the breastplate of righteousness is imparted righteousness, but the shield of faith is faith in the justification that God has produced in you. It is justifying faith. That is faith that takes God at his word, that takes hold of God's promises, that rests in those promises and believes to the saving of his soul, that appropriates his grace to my need, who stands on the promises of God. That shield of faith enables me to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
<clears throat> in the 17th verse, then, Paul stops using participles to describe this standing firm and instead issues a command. Two things that he commands here. First of all, um, two things that you take, really, you take them right before you enter battle. And if you think football is like a modern gladiator and uh, a football player, when he's on the sideline, has his helmet off, almost always they take their helmet off when they get to the sideline. Uh, and you put the helmet on as you're ready to go into the, into the battle. And uh, that's the idea. Take the, ba- take the helmet. Because, and, and the reason Paul issues it as a command is because you're going into battle. Put it on. All right? you're, th- you are now entering the battle. Put on the, the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit. So you're to take the helmet. You're to take the sword. Those two things. <clears throat> and this helmet of salvation is really in another place. Paul describes it as the helmet of the hope of salvation, the confident anticipation of this both current present salvation where God has delivered you from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but also future salvation where you are delivered from the presence of sin, where you are utterly, totally, finally redeemed. Not just your spirit, which is what died when Adam sinned, but your body as well, which is what still continues to plague you and afflict you and cause you to stumble and fall into sin. All of that is redeemed. All of it. So the helmet of salvation is the anticipation, the hope, the Bible calls it, that lively hope that we're begotten to, that confidently looks for the day when I will be finally redeemed and freed from the bondage of this flesh, the corruption of my nature will be completely cleared away. So that's the helmet for my head. It protects my head. That confidence takes away all the doubts, all the fears. I put on that helmet and I take also the sword of the spirit, which Paul tells us is the word of God. We take that sword of the Spirit both for defense and for offense to ward off the blows of Satan with the Word of God and to thrust and to counter and to attack with the Word of God. The Word of God puts me on the offensive here. And the Word of God, which is our sword, refers to the Word believed, preached, practiced, applied, and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Now in the 18th verse, Paul goes back to using participles again. He uses two here. Before he used participles to describe standing firm, having loins girt about with truth. So describe the soldier standing firm. He has his loins girt about with truth. He has on the breastplate of righteousness. He has his feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He has the... Uh, the shield of faith, right? So that's the picture, the picture of the Christian soldier in complete armor, standing firm. Now, Paul uses two more participles here 
to describe the way the soldier in complete armor stands firm. So you see a description of the soldier, and now you see a description of the way he stands firm. How does he stand firm? By watching and praying. That's how. So then prayer and watchfulness are not additional pieces of armor. Nor are they weapons. But rather they refer to the soldier's attitude. His alertness, his vigilance, his his readiness for war. I, you know, there are some that I can handle not being ready. I, you know, if you walk in the post office and the postal worker is kind of, you know, checking out his phone and not really paying much attention, I'm not worried. I don't like to see soldiers sitting around, you know, half-buttoned, sloppy, slovenly. That's not a good thing. A few years ago, my wife and I, it was more than a few, I guess. It was during the Obama presidency. We were in San Diego, and we took a boat tour of the, I don't know what it is, bay or harbor there in San Diego, And we were riding along and we saw four or five of the many aircraft carriers parked in that harbor (laughs) right next to each other. I thought, this just doesn't seem like a good plan to me. If somebody wants to take us out, they can take out four of them all at once. One hit right there and parked in the harbor just doesn't seem like readiness to me. There's to be a readiness about us because we have a deadly enemy who wants to take us down. How, what does readiness look like? It looks like watchful prayer. That's it. Paul points out two particular ways the Christian soldier prepares for battle. I've already told you what those are. But I want to expand that into four elements of readiness. Here we go. First of all, let's look at the Christian soldier's watchfulness. Even though this comes after praying in the verse, I want to deal with it first. The watchful Christian knows what he needs to pray for. He's paying attention. Okay, and I I say this because I know my own prayer life. It is easy to pray through the list and never think about anything on the list. It is easy to pray for the missionary and just take the same prayer and insert a different name for each missionary. It is easy to pray for one another and just Take that same prayer and change the names. But what Paul is calling for here is an attentiveness, an alertness, recognition, knowing I'm right now I'm 
uh, listening on Audible, I'm listening to a biography of um, Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, Grant was, he's really an anomaly. He was made for one thing, and that was war. He was a failure as a man. He was not just a failure, he was a loser as a man. Seriously. Until he got to battle, and in battle, he was forceful, he was, he anticipated the enemy, he recognized where the enemy's weaknesses were, he was obsessed with understanding the terrain where the battle was to take place, he was expert at choosing the, the place where the battles would take place, he was vigilant. And this is what we're talking about, watchfulness. The watchful Christian knows what he needs to pray for, and the praying Christian will be a watchful Christian. So I'm not changing anything in the passage here to argue or to present watchfulness first here, but just arguing that the Christian soldier must be vigilant, must be vigilant on high alert, aware of where the attack may come from, where you are most vulnerable, what kind of enemy you're up against, how he's likely to attack you. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Certainly the Christian soldier must not be sleeping. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Notice that the verse says, Watching thereunto. So, watching thereunto is pointing back to our prayerfulness. Right there. Watching unto prayer. Vigilant to pray whenever the need arises. So, noticing when prayer is needed, and praying when it's needed. Watchful in in prayer. Attentive when praying. Vigilant to maintain the spirit of prayer throughout the day so that there is always a prayer that is ready at all times. Keep on the alert for times when prayer is needed. Nehemiah set a wonderful example for this in terms that we can visualize when he was building the walls of Jerusalem. The Bible says, but it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, listen to what Nehemiah said. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. They prayed and they watched. They watched for the enemy to come and they kept up a constant vigil of prayer. We also must be on high alert for those times when we ourselves are likely to be drawn away with our own lusts and enticed. 
Paul here is concerned with the wiles of the devil. That's what he want, That's why we put on the armor of God that we might be able to withstand in the evil day. That we would be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. All his deceptions, his fiery darts, the subtle ways that he attacks Christians. Very rarely does Satan walk up to you as Satan and attack, assault you directly to your face. It's always, always a sneak attack. Always he lies in ambush for you. And that's why you have to be vigilant. You think about the um, pioneers out here coming west as they were traveling and heard the rumor of native uprisings and the vigilance, the watchfulness of the scouts, the great responsibility there to be prepared, not knowing what a rise or a bluff might conceal. This is what we're talking about. But this vigilance in prayer is to keep you constantly on your guard. This watchfulness in prayer. But notice that Paul urges the believers to pray for himself as well. Now we're going to get into that here in a moment because there there, there are two things I think Paul is aiming at with that. But Paul's request surely tells us that we ought to be vigilant in prayer, not just for ourselves, but for each other as well. I ought to pray for you. I should pray for my wife, for my children. If I should pray for you, I should pray for my wife and my kids for sure. I should be watchful in prayer for them. Noticing the ways that Satan is seeking to attack them, to draw their hearts after things that would be destructive to them, that to lure them away. See, that's the way the wolf always works. He tries to separate you from the main body, draw you aside so that he can devour you, catch you, kill you and eat you. It's always amazing. You know, you talk about lions, the king of the beasts. And everything I read and, and see about lions, they live a life of half starvation. It's amazing because they're so powerful and so frightening. And yet to catch a deer, a gazelle or something like that, they have to get it by itself. And they have to attack the wounded, the weak, the young the helpless. I don't quite understand it, but that's the way God made it to work. And so Satan tries to lure you away, distract you, get you away from everyone else so that he can devour you. And our watchfulness in prayer for for my wife, for my kids, and for you has to be a watchfulness to recognize when Satan is drawing you away. When Satan is seeking to lure one of my kids into a trap that will be for their destruction. 
I should be vigilant for you. You should be vigilant for me. And we should all be watchful in prayer for each other. But this requires us to be engaged and attentive to each other and to our needs. If you're ignoring everybody around you, you're ignoring your wife, you're ignoring your kids, you're ignoring the people in the church, then you're not prepared, you're not watchful, you don't know what to pray for. That's why we need to be talking to each other, having conversations, learning about each other all the time. You think, well, I know this, I know these people. But do you know what the deep needs are of the people around you? Your kids. There's always a concern to me if I'm not sure where my kids are at, what they're thinking. When that happens, it's important, it's urgent that I spend time with them in such a way that they can unburden themselves so that I know what's going on in their heart. That's watchfulness. And we're commanded, we're told that the way we stand firm is by watching thereunto, watching unto prayer. Paying attention to what I need to be praying for. The second thing then that I want to show you is the Christian's prayerfulness. As we are to be watchful under prayer, it's not just, you know, to satisfy a curiosity. What I should be praying for. But it is so that I will be praying for it. Paul applies the word all to our praying, I want you to notice because he uses the word all several times in verse 18. In fact, we could call it the four alls of the Christian soldier's prayer life. I almost made that the sermon tonight, but I liked my other title better. So I preached it this way. We must pray at all times. That is on every occasion, praying always. We must pray with all kinds of prayers, every kind of prayer and request all prayer and supplication, general prayers, specific prayers, pleading prayers, praising prayers, all of those, every kind of praying that we should be doing. So yes, there is a place for praying, Lord, please help so-and-so, bless them, be with them, encourage them, strengthen their heart, uphold them. General prayers, but then pleading prayers. They have a real need in this. This This is a serious thing. I'm concerned about this. I'm seeing this and I don't know what it means. And Lord, please, if there's something going on in their heart that's drawing them away, please bring them back, clear that out. Please help them, strengthen them, encourage them. Lord, they're discouraged right now. Praying for them that way, pleading with God on their behalf. And again, this is something that families should be doing for each other. And this is something that the church should be doing as well. We should be praying this way for one another. Now, I'm going to get into that in a little bit. So let me get back to where I am. There are four alls here. 
all times, all kinds of prayer. Uh, We must pray then with all perseverance, pray without ceasing, the Bible says, to pray constantly, persistently, not hit and miss, not, you know, how some people when they when they run, I think somebody was talking about running this last week. And then um, there was one of the ladies while we were um, we were together uh, with just the missionaries was saying that she had run a 5K and she said there was this pregnant lady uh, that was running in the 5K and she was running in the 5K and this pregnant lady um, would sprint and then walk and then sprint and then walk. And I know my kids hate this too. Somebody does that and beats them. Oh. You know, but this is not the way that we're to we're we're to plot. We're to keep up a persistent plotting prayer life. Day after day after day after day. Not not crisis prayer. All right? But praying consistently even if you will anticipating needs. Praying before there's an emergency. Praying, you know, Jesus taught us, give us this day to pray this. Give us this day our daily bread, right? In anticipation that there might be a need to be praying for that. And finally, the fourth all is to pray for all saints. For all saints. Now, the Greek uses the preposition peri. And this is interesting. I didn't see it in any of the commentaries said anywhere. Um, So this is purely mine in all my expertise when it comes to um, Greek and so on. But the the preposition peri, you you would recognize it. You think perimeter. Um, It's that same same prefix, peri, that means um, about, the way I learned it, you know, this is evidence that I'm not a native Greek speaker, Queen A Greek especially, but um, because because when you can give precise definition, that means that you don't really know the language, just so you know. Um, anyway, about, concerning, around, about. That's how I learned that preposition. It gives the idea of being all around, of surrounding. This is where we get the idea of surrounding a person with prayer. Surrounding them with prayer, praying for them on all sides, for all saints, concerning all saints, about all saints, praying around all saints, surrounding them with prayer. Our prayer life indicates our readiness for combat. But prayer also prepares us so that we're ready. Just as, you know, if you're a Marine, one thing for sure. If you don't like to fire a weapon, don't be a Marine, right? Because, yeah, what would be the point, right? Go in the Air Force or something like that. But (laughs) you're going to fire your weapon a lot. Why Why do the Marines have you fire the weapon all the time? Because if you go into battle, that's what you're going to be doing. Right? They want you to be super familiar with it. I know, same thing for um, Brother Caleb, that he's firing his weapon a lot because he's got to be prepared to fire his weapon. 
So they have you do lots of what you're going to do. So this tells you where we go to war. We go to war on our knees. We go to war in prayer. So this praying prepares us for battle and praying tells us whether or not we are prepared for battle. We ought to be watchful in prayer, but prayer also makes us watchful. And we're told to pray in the Spirit. That means praying in the Spirit. So, So notice this in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. What does that mean, in the Spirit? we must pray according to God's design for prayer. So you're not freelancing when you pray. You're approaching God. It's, It's sad and I think a failure of churches and especially in the casualness of this age that You know, when the Bible tells you to come boldly before the throne of grace, pause and think, because we almost come presumptuously. And coming boldly is not the same as coming presumptuously. You are entering into the throne room of the thrice holy God. And there should be a sense of awe. Whose presence you are entering. And it should never, never, never become a casual thing to you. Unlike the idea promoted in contemporary worship, you aren't coming in and sitting down on the desk. You aren't coming in and sitting on the step and just kicking back Like I heard a guy open the Senate, Utah Senate in prayer this way. Here's how he started his prayer. Hello, God. Can I give Bible for why that's wrong? I don't think I can give a specific verse. But I'm very concerned about the flippant way So here's the way that we must pray. The Bible teaches us to pray to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us in our infirmities so that our prayers are not self-centered, but God-centered. The Holy Spirit teaches us to pray according to the will of God, And the Holy Spirit ignites our prayers in the will of God, as Warren Wiersbe explains it, because in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the altar of incense, the incense was a picture of the prayers of the saints, and the fire that burned the incense was a picture of the Holy Spirit of God who takes our prayers and ignites them in the will of God. And so we ought to remember that we pray 
as a member of the great family of God. Jesus taught us to say our Father, which art in heaven. It's been pointed out. He said, our Father, not my Father. Because he's not my Father in isolation from everyone else. He is our Father, and I approach him as part of the whole family of believers. And just as the armor of God is not to be worn by scattered individuals in the church, but the whole church is to put on the whole armor of God. Even so, we must uphold each other in prayer and sustain each other in prayer. Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for himself. And if he needed the prayers of the saints, then I do too, and you do too. We all do. If Paul did, we do. If my prayers help another believer defeat Satan, then that victory helps me as well. So we've seen the soldier's watchfulness, his prayerfulness. Now, let me point out two more things that I see in this passage. I want you to notice the Christian's pluckiness. I like that word, pluckiness. You know what it is to be plucky, right? To persist in prayer. Notice what verse 18 says, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Persistent pleading on behalf of God's people. Paul calls for constant attention and, if you will, relentless care. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to stop praying for you. No days off. No sloughing, no slacking, plucky. You just keep coming back. And I, you know, I, I don't make a lot of movie references, but, but I think of I think of Rocky. Right? What did the Russians say? He's like a piece of steel. He just keeps coming back. You knock him down and he keeps getting back up and keeps coming back and back and back and back. And let's face it, folks, if you're committed to prayer, you're committed to a lot of disappointment because you're going to pray for a lot of things and not get what you wanted or what you thought needed to happen. It, I, I don't like to say it that way because... We shouldn't be disappointed with the answers that God gives us, but I'm saying that you're going to pray for things and you're going to pray for people and you're going to be disappointed, but you're going to stick with it and you're going to keep coming back to the throne and pleading again and again. Think of Abraham pleading for Lot and the destruction of Sodom. And Abraham saw the humanity of Sodom and Gomorrah and pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah and kept pleading, Lord, if there are 20 righteous people, if there are 50 righteous people, if there are 10 righteous people, if there are five. And still Sodom and, destroy, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. But Lot saved. 
There weren't five. But his pleading was not all in vain. We are called to keep up a constant prayer vigil for one another. And again, we should not wait for a crisis to have a prayer vigil. There should be a constant praying. No days off. Undeterred by contrary results or changes of fortune. Not discouraged when things fall short of our hopes and our desires but tenacity in prayer for all the saints. And we must do this as long as we live. We strap on the armor. And look, you're to put on the whole armor of God. It is to be already on and in place. This is your protection. Now pray diligently. Pray and pray and pray. In other words... Go to war. Quite often, the prayer closet is our war room. We must persevere in a particular prayer. As Matthew Henry said it, not cutting it short when our hearts are disposed to enlarge and there's a time for it and our occasions call for it. We must likewise persevere in particular requests, notwithstanding some present discouragements and repulses. Don't give up. Don't give up. This is the kind of concern we should have for each other in prayer. And when a special need arises, we must be especially watchful. But if we've been watchful in prayer, then we are prepared when a special need arises and we don't need to go and make introductions or say things like, Lord, I'm sorry, I haven't been praying very much. I need to pray now. Finally, I want you to see the Christian soldier's boldness that really springs out of his prayer life, but also is a product of his prayer life. It's something he aims at in his prayer life. Now, Paul expands on this theme of readiness in the next two verses. Verse 19 and 20, he aims to get the Ephesians to pray for himself. But understand, it's not all about Paul. He is telling them, To be watchful in prayer as the demeanor, the readiness of a Christian soldier, right? So they're to do this because Satan is seeking to attack them. So so there is a place for you to be praying for yourself, recognizing your own vulnerabilities, your own weaknesses, your own faults and failures, asking the Lord to build you up, to strengthen you, to uphold you, to prepare you, equip you for whatever challenges may come that day, whatever snares Satan may lay for your feet on that day but not limiting your prayers to yourself, praying for others as well, praying for others. And so Paul says it, not, well, he tells you to pray for all saints, but then he tells specifically what he wants you to pray for, for him. And he does that so that you'll know how to pray for each other as well. If watchfulness in prayer is vital to readiness, then these things that Paul wants the believers to pray for here must be part of that readiness. Notice what Paul asked prayer for. 
Because this seems to run contrary. Because you put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, right? And having done all to stand, right? Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and so forth, right? So the armor of God and this vigil, this vigilant prayer is part of standing against the wiles of the devil. But when Paul asked the believers to pray for himself, he does not ask them to pray that he'll resist Satan. That's not what he's asking for. He says, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The word utterance translates the Greek word logos, a familiar word, I hope, to us. That means a word or a reason, an argument. Paul is asking for an argument not like what you have with your sister, all right? But an argument that he would be able to make his case, make the case for Christ to those he speaks to. Paul asked that when he opens his mouth, he'll have something to say. Now that might sound strange to us because of course Paul has something to say, right? He always has something to say. But Paul doesn't take that for granted. Paul, just like all of us, recognizes that when you're, when you're confronting fierce rebellion against God, it can be hard to have the right words to say. It can be hard to, you worry, you're concerned that you not say the wrong things, that you would, Be bold and thorough in your witness. Paul had that same concern. He wants to say what he ought to say and to say it with boldness. Now the word boldness refers to fearlessness. Confident freedom in speaking. He's asking that he could speak freely. And Paul prays that this utterance will be given to him to this end. He uses, in fact, a purpose clause in verse 19. And for me, that, that there, that there, I sound like, you know, anyway, the clampets or something. That there, that there, that is there as a purpose clause. All right, it indicates that the purpose in having this utterance is, well, the purpose in getting you to pray for him is that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. He isn't looking for boldness to spout his opinions. He isn't looking for brashness here. He asked prayer that God would give him utterance. So he isn't looking for a following for himself. He's asking God to give him 
this utterance. Not that he would be necessarily more assertive, but that God would speak through him. That's what he's praying. He isn't seeking to expand his natural gifts. He's looking for God to open the door to his mouth so that others would be reached. The prophets, Jeremiah said, but the Lord said unto me, say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Why do you think the Lord needed to tell Jeremiah not to be afraid of their faces? It's not because Jeremiah had the, uh, you know, bring it, just bring it attitude towards unbelievers. You know, a man can have that brash spirit about him and still when he goes to speak to unbelievers, he'll be afraid of their faces. Ezekiel, God said to Ezekiel, Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint, have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. God gave boldness to his prophets. And Paul asked the believers in Ephesus to pray for him, that God would give him boldness against the adversaries. And if Paul prayed, wanted you to pray that and clearly was praying that for himself, so should we. Now again, Paul uses a purpose clause here, so that God would give him utterance, that God would open his mouth. So the purpose in praying for Paul was so that he could open his mouth boldly. This is what Paul wants the believers to pray for himself. Then Paul uses the same preposition twice in a row. And I take this to be used in the instrumental sense that utterance may be given unto me by means of opening my mouth, by means of boldness. That's that's the sense that I understand this. Also that he could make known the gospel to other people. Because that's the battleground. That's the battleground. Now I want to tie this all together and show you something. I want you to see this. So this would be the time to wake up, shake yourself, clear the cobwebs, and get ready. Okay, because... This is really the crux of the message. Everything that Satan attempts to do to you is done in order to subvert the gospel. Everything. Because his ultimate assault is on the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. So if he can get you to believe false things, if he can get you to water down the gospel, so it's half strength, quarter strength, if he can get you to live 
contrary to the gospel, that he can neutralize your message. And that's what Satan is trying to do. He wants to neutralize your witness, to turn you from the gospel if possible. But if he can't, then he wants to turn others from the gospel by you. Either by, you know, maybe I haven't told this story, I don't know. But when I was in Bible college, I think I've told this. When I was in Bible college, I was taught an easy believism method of witnessing. And I was out winning people to Christ. I.e., I was out getting people to pray the prayer. And I could persuade anybody to do that. All you have to do to, to get people to pray the prayer is be a salesman. And I sold candy when I was in high school, so I could do that. Until one day, I encountered a man who challenged me. Whether he did it intentionally or not, he said, tell me this prayer that I can pray and then I can go do whatever I want and still go to heaven. I want to know what it is. And I didn't want him to know what it was as soon as he said it that way. And I remember after that, like my whole worldview was shattered. And I thought to myself, I'm sending people to hell by getting them to pray this prayer. That's Satan wants to subvert the gospel. And certainly, if he can, if you're going to be faithful to witness and he can get you to, sub, to subvert, the, to water down the gospel and pre- preach an easy believism and cheap grace. How much more if he can get your testimony to contradict the gospel, which he attempts to do by laying snares for your feet, by hurling fiery darts at you, by using all kinds of wiles, seductions and deceptions against you. Paul isn't asking the Ephesians to pray that he won't succumb to temptation. That's not, it. That's not what he asked them to pray for. He doesn't ask them to pray that he won't damage his testimony. He doesn't ask that. Now that's not to say that you shouldn't pray that for one another. But he asked them to pray that he will make the gospel known. That God will give him utterance so that he can boldly proclaim the gospel. So so this is the point. God did not give us the whole armor of God so that we could stand securely behind the castle walls and fire our arrows from a secure place. That's not why he gave it to us. I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for defense. But God wants us in the arena. God wants us in the battle. And the armor is so that we can enter the the arena without being destroyed. The armor is so that we can take the battlefield and drive the enemy off of it. Now, Satan wants to crush you 
or neutralize you or turn you to his own service. But the armor of God is designed to enable you so that you can enter the fray and proclaim the good news and take captivity captive for the sake of our Lord. And so I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 20. For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, the, the Ephesians, I think, probably got a good laugh when Paul called himself an ambassador in bonds. They, I'm sure that they were more tuned to the joke, kind of like, you know, how idioms and things like that in our own language don't translate. One thing that I learned, and I've been overseas enough to have learned this. Not, I've not spent a lot of time overseas, but I have learned in my couple of overseas or out of the country trip that jokes don't translate to other languages. People don't get it. Because jokes depend on nuance, on idiom, on slight changes in meaning, like the joke I always tell my students um, where Ben Franklin said to somebody, uh, your argument is sound, nothing but sound, <clears throat> right there. And yes, it takes a second. But if, you're, if you know another language and you've just learned English as a second language, you're going to have a tough time understanding that one. Why am I saying that? Well, <clears throat> it's hard for us to get the idea of an ambassador in bonds here. But I think the Ephesians would get the joke because ambassadors are not in bonds. Ambassadors, an ambassador has diplomatic immunity. Ambassadors from other countries to the United States literally can commit crimes and get away from it. Now, they can be expelled from our country, but they're not arrested and thrown into jail. It's not fair. It's the way it works with ambassadors because they represent another country. So to arrest an ambassador is to insult the nation. It is tantamount to an act of war. But here's Paul calling himself an ambassador in chains, literally. But he, doesn't, he doesn't use chains or bonds plural here. He actually, the word he uses is in the singular here. <clears throat> the plural form would mean that he is shackled, his feet and hands Bound, shackled, chained. Certainly Paul's been in that condition before. Paul and Silas, of course, in the, um, in the Philippian jail, right? But right now, when Paul is writing this, he has a single chain. He is chained to a Roman soldier. And what Paul means is, that every day there would be a shift 
where a Roman soldier would be chained to him for a certain amount of time. And then there would be a change. And another soldier would be chained to him. And then another day and night, he's chained to a soldier. And Paul, when he called himself an ambassador in bonds, is saying that I am an ambassador to the soldier I am chained to. So literally, what he is aiming at here, what he wants the Ephesians to pray for, is that he will be a bold witness to whatever soldier he's chained to. He has a captive audience. The chained ambassador here. In Colossians, Paul asked the brethren to continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, if Paul wanted the Ephesians to pray this for himself, how much more should we pray this for each other? Yes, absolutely pray for the needs that we have. But pray especially that God would give each of us utterance, that we would open our mouth boldly. We're in a war. We are in a war. It's, it's not whether you want to be in the war. It's not, you know, well, I need a little more time before I go out there. You know the, um, the story of the general in Chickamauga who sent the message to his commanding officer. I'm convinced, he said, that any further advance of our army will bring us into contact with the enemy. It's the definition of cowardice. All right, listen, you are out here to engage the enemy. That's what we're here for. And the way that we engage the enemy is by taking the gospel and preaching it to the lost. The, the armor protects us because when you go out and you go on the offensive, you're going to be attacked. So the armor protects you. But you're to wield the sword. The Christian in complete armor is very dangerous. Be dangerous. Be dangerous. Be dangerous. 